0: Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, May the 8th, a very happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers, and a very special happy Mother's Day to my mother, to Sandrion. I love you, Mom. Well, last week we did an overview of the book of Job, and so this week we're going to jump right in. Um, The book of Job is perhaps the oldest book in the Bible. No one Really knows who wrote it. A lot of scholars think that it could have been written by Moses, and and perhaps it could have been. While some date it as as late as the time of Solomon, but one thing is is certain: this book was given to us by the Holy Spirit. It it is a very profound book in all, in Scripture, and and in many ways it touches on certain themes more deeply than any other book in the Bible. It's, it's also a very beautiful book, and, and just on its own as a piece of literature, it's it's written in this majestic and glorious language. But Job was a real man, not a mythological figure. He's mentioned by Ezekiel, and he is classified as one of the three great men of the Old Testament, along with Noah and Daniel. That's Ezekiel 14. He is also mentioned in the New Testament by James, who refers to Job's patience and his steadfastness, his endurance. And according to the opening part of the book, Job lived in the land of Uz, and he was probably one of the most prominent citizens of that land. He was a contemporary of Abraham, and most likely—so so this book goes, goes back, excuse me, to the very beginnings of biblical history— And I think as we will see, this book is is sort of like an epic poem, very much like the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer. And some think it was presented at times as a drama in which actors recited the parts of the different characters of the book. Most of the book is poetry, but it begins and ends with, with a prose, prologue, and epilogue, which are like program notes that are given to the audience in this drama. So chapter 1 gives us the setting and introduces, of course, Job. And we're told first of his, of his piety, beginning in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And the most noteworthy thing about Job, evidently, was his godliness. He feared God, and everyone knew him because of that. The RSV uh, says that he was blameless, and many who have read that thought it meant that Job was sinless, but that's not the same thing. We've, We've had this conversation before. We can be sinful and still be blameless if we have learned how to handle our sin the way God tells us to. In other words, turn from it, repent, confess it, then we are blameless of that sin. So evidently, Job had learned how to handle sin. So in that sense, he was blameless. However, this is not the best translation of the Hebrew word that appears here. It is really a word that means complete man. Job was well-balanced, and the reason he was well-balanced was that he loved the Lord, that he feared God. He was not materialistic. He did not just look on life as a means of getting ahead in the world. Job was also aware of God, and he saw God's hand in everything he did, and that made him a complete man. Job was not a theologian either. He was very practical, very down to earth. And I think these terms are best explained by the last part of verse one. He feared God and turned away from evil. That is, he was, com- he was complete because he feared God and he was upright because he turned away from evil. The second thing we're told about Job is that he was very prosperous. Um, Picking up in verse 3, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Job was known for his prosperity. He, he, He sort of sounds like maybe the swagger of sort of a rich Texas cattleman, so to speak. God gives riches at times, and the riches are not necessarily wrong by any means, although we are warned about the danger and the potential deceitfulness of them. But here was a man whom God made rich. And the last thing that we're told about Job personally is his love, his fatherly concern for his children. Picking up in verse four, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each, of each one on his day, like a birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer a burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Job did this continually. Now, that little phrase, curse God in their hearts, becomes this theme of the book of Job. We're going to hear that a lot. And ultimately, that is the test which Job is him, himself is put to. Will he curse God in his heart? This was a matter of great concern to Job about his kids, his children. He had seven sons, and as each had a birthday, that meant seven times a year. They had a feast, which they invited their sisters. And what Job did, according to the record, was the equivalent of like, Sort of holding a special intercessory prayer time for someone that we have some concern about. Job offered burnt offerings because he recognized that his children needed spiritual help most when things were going well, not during times of stress. I think this indicates a, a lot of uh, spiritual insight on the part of Job. He knew that the pressure to deny God, to, f- to forsake God, to somewhat curse God comes most strongly when things are going well, not necessarily when things are going poorly. And and, and maybe that's true for you. I, I know that can certainly be true for me. Job did not offer a sin offering, because that was something only the sinner himself could do. Sin offerings are no value if you do not repent of the sin. So Job offered a burnt offering, which in the scriptures is is a symbol of total dedication to God and awareness of God's rightful ownership of us. So when Job made this offering, he was expressing the burden of his heart for his children, that they might be holy and completely God's. He was praying for them by means of this burnt offering. So we have a picture of Job, a godly man, a great landowner, and a good father. And then in verse 6, suddenly the, the, the scene shifts to the world of invisible realities, which in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, is called the heavenlies. It's not some far-off place in outer space. It's right around us, but it is invisible to us. We're separated from it by this invisible barrier so that we cannot see what is going on in that invisible world where God and Satan, angels, demons function. So suddenly this curtain is lifted, and, our, and we now see, uh, have this, this suddenly open to this drama, and we see what's going on behind the scenes. We see what Job himself could not see, beginning in verse 6. Now there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and and Satan also came among, among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro, walking about on the earth and walking up and down. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Don't hurt him. So Satan went out. From the presence of the Lord. So it's this crazy scene, very similar to what John describes in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, where he sees tons, tens, and thousands, and thousands, and thousands of angels gathered in this great audience chamber of heaven and in the very presence of God himself. And these angels were called the sons of God because, like Adam, they were a direct creation of God's hand. But unlike Adam, they were not given the authority nor the command to multiply and produce others like themselves. No one knows how many angels there are. There seems to be countless numbers of them, but all of them were created by God directly. And in this instance, were present before God to give sort of a report of their activities. And and I think we need to fling back the borders here a little bit of our imagination in a scene like this and realize that God is interested in far more. Than perhaps this this little place of ours called Earth and the whole of the universe. As scientists are looking at it. Um, there are many guesses, of course, as to how many other planetary systems are like ours. How many other inhabitable worlds? And out of millions of galaxies, it, it does that doesn't matter. I don't want us to get lost in the weeds. But one thing is clear from both science and scripture: it all adds up to this massive universe, something that we can't comprehend one place, and God is in control of all of it. And so these ministering angels come to report, and in the midst of them is Satan. Satan means the adversary, and and that's how he first appears in the book of Job. We can see him there with all the angels, and obviously he's already fallen. In the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, we are told how he fell once the greatest of the angels now lifted up by pride satan has become the enemy of god the rebel within the kingdom of god and we can see him sort of sauntering about among the angels you know maybe hands in his pocket uh maybe a toothpick in his teeth, sort of this disdainful uh glare of all the rest looking for an opportunity to accuse and i think the significant fact in this account is that though he has clearly fallen, somehow he still has access to God. That is what we have to recognize about Satan. He's not been excluded. Um, and there are books we can pick up that suggest that he is he is bound in hell or that he's committed to a kind of furnace room in the universe. But these are distortions um, from the truth. Uh, Satan in this in this instance has access now. You know, we also know that scripture doesn't contradict itself and, and, you know, God cannot be in the presence of evil. Um, so we're not real sure. You know, I don't know how that works, but, but this, this book, Job has tremendous things to say about, about um, suffering. And, and the first hint is coming up. Why do innocent, righteous people, quote unquote, sometimes undergo terrible Episodes of tragic injustice and suffering, and and I think that the book of Job will help us to understand, uh, maybe not answer that question, but can understand maybe even what the question is, so to speak. But there's still a deeper level of truth behind the book of Job. Basically, it's given to us to reveal the relationship here where Satan and, of Satan and God. So we're not confused about the power of this vicious enemy whom we all wrestle. See, we have to understand. Satan is not the equivalent of God. In other words, we do not have two equally opposing gods, a good God and a bad God struggling against each other. This this book helps us to understand right from the start that God is in control of all things. All forces are at his command and nothing, nothing ever takes him by surprise. Nothing goes beyond his word and his will, including Satan. And this book, I think, will help us to catch a glimpse of the greatness and the majesty of God. We'll see what we desperately need to see: that God is is not just another man, just great in power and authority, whom we call, um, whom influences and in command. God, God is not a, a heavenly bellboy ready to run in our command. He's not this necessarily this this gentle, soft, um, you know, uh, kind of cuddly thing. No, God is in charge and he will always be in charge. And if we're going to deal realistically with life, this is the way that we have to see him. You see, we sometimes hear that this book of Job is is the record of a great battleground between God and Satan and that Job is caught in between. Now, though there are aspects of this in the book, It is is this not sort of a strange war then in which one side has to get permission from the other side before it attacks. What, what kind of battle is that? Um, we talked last week about World War II a little bit in history, but can, can you imagine a German commander during World War II stepping up to General Patton and saluting him, and saying, uh, General, we'd like permission to bomb your troops, to destroy your tanks, and to wreck all your plans. Um, that's crazy. Uh, we, we look at our current history, Um, Vladimir Putin did not ask permission, um, to invade, um, Ukraine from Ukrainian, um, from the Ukrainian president, right? It's, it's these two opposing forces. This is not the situation we look at, um, in, in Job, um, Satan comes to God and ask permission to do something against Job. Now that is not a battle. It is not warfare. It's a test. And that's what we have to see. Job's faith is the subject of a very rigorous test. And Satan is the one who brings it about. But God permits it. And I think the striking thing about this account is that, if, that, is, is God's, that chal- it, it, it is, excuse me, that God challenges Satan, not the other way around. God says, Satan, where have you been? Oh, says Satan, I've been here and there looking all over the earth trying to find somebody. And God says, well, have you taken a look at Job? That's the man I'm proud of. You see, God's own assessment of Job is that there is none like him in all the earth. Job is blameless and upright. In other words, he's, he's complete, he's balanced. And he turns from evil as soon as he recognizes it. So God asks Satan, have you tried Job? Satan says, well, I've, I certainly have tried. I've looked that man over carefully and examined how to get at him, but I can't get near. You got him hedged in, surrounded by protection. I've tried every way I can. But you've got him so protected, there's no way to get through. And two things in particular emerge. The satanic activity and the satanic philosophy. Satan's activity is going up and down, looking for somebody that he can get at. This is in line with what Peter tells us, our adversary. And here Peter uses the same term, the meaning of the name Satan. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. He goes about seeking those he can get at to twist, distort, ruin if he can. Now there's a tremendous helpful picture of some of the forces at work in every one of our lives. There is a vicious, malicious enemy looking for cracks. Remember how in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul speaks of giving the devil an opportunity. In chapter four, verse 26, Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So when do we give the devil an opportunity to get at us? Well, when we hold a grudge, when we get mad at somebody and refuse to forgive them, when we keep nursing our anger and wrath, feeding it all the time, the devil is watching and saying, I've got a chance. The suggestion here is that whoever reflects to some degree the devil's philosophy is available to his attack The devil's answer to God is, you've protected Job, and that's why he serves you. But if you take away your protection, he'll curse you right to your face. In other words, Satan's philosophy says that self-serving is the fundamental law of life. What's in it for me is the ultimate question for every human being. Satan says, and nobody will ever deny that. Put them in the right circumstances— where they have to choose between what is best for them and something else they will choose for themselves every time. That's what Satan challenges. Now, whoever begins to reflect that philosophy to any degree becomes open to the Satan's activity. So the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon himself do not put forth your hand. Don't hurt him. Don't hurt him personally, or excuse me, physically. The third fact that emerges in this account is is satanic limitation. God has set the boundaries to Satan's activities. But the impressive thing is that although Satan is a rebel and he would break the rules if he could, there's no suggestion that he even attempts to break forth from this limitation. There's no possible way by which even Satan can violate God's restriction. He has no power to do it. And so he abides by the rules. God is totally in control. Well, that makes us comfortable, un- uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, this, this is hard. This is hard to, to get our minds around. And the, and the rules of the test are clear. Job is going to be stripped of his possessions because Satan's argument is that they, that when they're taken away, Job will deny God right to his face. So God says to Satan, all right, we'll see. Get at it. He's in your power. But don't touch his body. Then the last part of chapter 1 gives us the terrible results, verses 13 and 15. Now, now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So here comes the first messenger of doom saying, hey, your oxen and donkeys are gone, uh, the Sabaeans living over the hill, you know, those guys, they came and, and did a raid. They took them all. They they killed your servants, and I'm the only one left, and I've come to tell you that. Then then in 16, and while he was speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and and I alone have escaped to tell you. Uh, you know, perhaps this fire was some kind of lightning storm. More, more likely it could have been a volcanic eruption, um, you know, brimstone gases sprayed the countryside, the sheep and all the servants were killed except for this one. Then in verse 17, and while he was speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three companies and made a raid upon the camels and took them and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I have alone escaped to tell you there went Job's camels, the most prized possession in the Arab world in terms of animal servitude taken in a raid And then in verse 18, and while he was speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is one day. Um, I I hope that we can kind of keep some of this in perspective, maybe. I hope that I can the next time that I have some bad news. The malignancy of Satan is revealed and that he struck to the full extent of his permission. He went right to the boundaries that God permitted him, and, and he took away everything Job had. He did not ease the load. He, he, didn't, he did not stretch it out. He gave no time for preparation. Um, one after another, four times, the hammer fell, and every time, Job's heart is crushed. And then finally, he, he lost all of his sons and his daughters. And, and in this account, we see that Satan is given power over, somehow, natural forces. And, and I think some, we can, we can misinterpret this, saying that this is the way, this is always true of the devil, that, that he's the one who runs the winds and the waves. But I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Many, many of the Psalms speak of God's control and power in the natural world. But I think we must remember here that Satan must always obtain divine permission to use these natural forces for his own ends. So when Jesus stilled the winds on the Sea of Galilee, he rebuked the wind and the waves. Now, Jesus was not talking to air and water. He was talking to the forces that were behind them, the the satanic power that was using these forces to stir up a storm. Evidently, judging from this account in the book of Job, Satan had to receive permission from God the Father to bring that storm into being. Man, that makes me so uncomfortable. Does that make you uncomfortable? Satan, the God of this world, is at times given permission to bring these things about, and, and I, I know the atheists often use that fact to present Christian teaching about the character of God and in the, in, in the worst possible light. They'll say things like, "Well, your Bible says that that your God allows that to happen. What kind of God have you got? I mean, that doesn't sound like love. How can a how can a loving God dot 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 dot?" But this is what makes our faith tremble and shake, and, and, and we come up with these superficial answers to, to what is happening. You know, one Christian defense of this is to say, well, Satan is kind of an independent agent, and he does what he likes, and God has given him areas where he can operate and has no control over him. But when we read an account of, uh, of some public disaster or a great earthquake, a volcanic explosion, uh, or this a raid by an enemy on another, we have to read it with a realization that though Satan has been— the instrument by which that was done somehow the will of God is being fulfilled and is and is involved and and Satan has demanded and obtained from God the power to bring it to pass. So this is why the book of Job is given to us to show us that there is far far deeper reason why God permits tragedy, why God why there is testing than the superficial answers that we often give, and and the, this reason will. Kind of unfold as we go on in the book. And we'll see that God is not, as Satan would love to have him painted, a cold, impersonal God who does not really care for us and who does not mind submitting us to tortures and to indecencies and injustices. Rather, as James tells us, God is merciful and compassionate. And out of this book emerges the revelation of the mercy and the compassion of God. But we see for now, Job's reaction in verse 20. Then Job arose um, and, and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshiped. Job did not complain. He did not blame God. He did not get all angry and upset and say, why should this happen to me? What have I done that all these things should suddenly come on me? C.S. Lewis once remarked when when asked the question, why should the righteous suffer? He said, why not? He replied, they're the only ones that can handle it. So Job's response is verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. So the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is, thank God for the times when I did have these, these things and the enjoyment they gave me, the times with my children, the blessings they brought into my life. Rather than complain about the loss, I recognize that God's sovereign and he has a right to do with me as he will. If he gives me things, he has a right to take them away. And, and I can say, thank you for, for having had them as long as I did. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Verse 22. So he wins the first round. It's clear that Satan's argument has been answered. Take away the possessions of a man like Job, and he will still not curse Job to his face. He still loves God and he follows him and he serves him and he recognizes God's right. It's a severe test. And, and I've, wonder, how would I do? How would I have passed? But the test isn't over. There's much more yet to come, much more worse to come. And before the book is through, we will see levels of pride in Job of which he's totally unaware. And we'll begin to see what God is after in Job's life, just like in ours by this kind of testing. So, you know, we may be thinking to ourselves, you know, I wonder what's going on behind the scenes about me, I wonder what Satan is saying about, about me now. And if he's asking permission to get me, and if that's what you're, you're thinking, you know, all we can say is, is not to worry, to live one day at a time for one of the things that Job tells us, this book tells us is that if Satan completely had his way, every one of us would, would always be in this kind of difficulty. He, he, Satan would wreck us, hurt us, tear us apart all the time, not because he's angry at us, but because he wants to get at God, the God that we serve. But God's protecting hand has been over us. And if we can sit here to any degree this morning of peace and enjoyment, it is because the hand of God has been like a hedge around us, protecting us and giving us great and wonderful things. So therefore, the attitude of of all of our hearts ought to be, thank you, Lord, for what I have. Thank you, Lord, for where I am now. You know, what the future may hold, only God knows. But for right now, thank you. And if it holds some kind of testing like this, it's, it's only because as Paul has reminded us in first Corinthians, God will not test you above what you are able to bear. He knows what we can bear and he will not put us to the test to serve it, to serve it must just to, 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 destroy our faith. But there are implications in every test that go far beyond the superficial aspects. And that's what we have to remember. And as this remarkable book unfolds, we'll see some of the things that God brought to the attention to Job. Amen, and God bless.